Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you today for the opportunity we have to be here. And God, we just ask that over these next couple of hours, that this normal school cafeteria would be turned into a sacred space. That God, your Holy Spirit would be here ultimately teaching and guiding. And that God, we would set aside this room so that we could honor and glorify you. We thank you, God, for drawing people to this place today. For whatever reason, God, they're here. I pray most of all that they would hear you, Lord, speaking to them by your Spirit and through your Word. And God, I just pray that you would watch over all of us today while we're here. God, that you would give us insight, that you would give us, Lord, understanding, that you would give us wisdom from you. And that, God, that this Saturday together would be a spiritually profitable time. That, God, each of us, no matter what our backgrounds or where we come from, God, that we would walk away from here going that, you know, I was able to be drawn a little bit closer to to the Lord through our time together. Because, God, that's what this is all about. And so, God, I pray that you would help me this very feeble servant of yours, to do a job, God, this morning that would honor you and that would bless you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at the Oasis, folks hear this a lot from me, but I want to say this up front. I don't believe that the Bible was given to us by God for information, but for transformation. Um... If you have come here this morning and you primarily come because you're trying to soak up more information to add to all the information up there in your head about facts concerning the future or last days, I mean, I'm glad you're here, but that's not my motivation for doing this seminar today. You see, as I've said humorously, and yet it's not so humorous, I've known people over the years who can tell us every beast there is in the book of Revelation, and then they act like it too. And that's not why God gave us His Word. It wasn't just so that we could, you know, intellectually gather a bunch of facts into our head and know more. God gave us His Word so that we could become more like Jesus Christ, so that He could transform us to be more like Himself. As Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, though our outward man is perishing, our inner man should be renewed day by day. And then Paul said in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we are here today not for information, but hopefully for transformation. That God can make changes in our life through His Word today. You'll notice there at the top of the page of your notes, again entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, an overview that I quote from the book of Amos. Certainly the Sovereign Lord does nothing without first revealing His plan to His servants, the prophets. And we are just blessed by the very fact that God chose to reveal the things that He has revealed to us. 
No God hasn't revealed to us as human beings everything we want to know, but God has said in His Word, I have revealed to you everything that you need to know. As Deuteronomy 28, 28 says, there are still secret things that belong to the Lord, but those that He has chosen to reveal to us do belong to us, and we should understand them and come to know them, and again, be changed and transformed by them. So you'll notice this, and I mentioned this last Sunday. In fact, for those of you that weren't here uh, last Sunday, uh, I would encourage you to go out there and listen to the podcast of last Sunday's message where I spoke about why I believe we are living in the last days. I shared with our church family last week that there are about 190 prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming to earth, and they are all literally fulfilled But the Bible has about 300 prophecies concerning His second coming, and we believe that those will be fulfilled as well. We are not going to know the day or the hour, but we can know the times and seasons in which we live. So, with that said, notice these very important statements. Prophecy isn't written to scare us, but to prepare us. If we truly believe that one day... As John said, we are God's children now, and it has not been totally revealed what all will be happening with us, but we know this, when we see Him, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. If we really believe that one day we will see Jesus, and we will stand before our Lord, then that very fact, John goes on to say, should be some kind of purifying effect in our life. Our destiny should determine our present discipleship. And so God didn't give us what's going to happen in the future and all of that to scare us, but so that you and I can be prepared for the days in which we live and for what is going to come from God's timetable. Prophecy isn't written to frighten us, but to invite us. To invite us in to a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. To invite us in to draw closer and closer to God. As James says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And so that's why prophecy is given. Again, not just for information, but for transformation. So let's start, first of all, with the title of the book. You'll notice the title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation in the Greek language is the word apocalypsis, where we get our word apocalypse from. It simply means a disclosure, an unveiling, an uncovering. So what's the book of Revelation primarily about? It is primarily not about future events. Even though for centuries, even Christians and followers of God have used the book of Revelation or ignored it, Because they primarily thought, I can't understand it. And obviously there's not all of it we can understand. But we also can't take the opposite view that there's none of it we can understand. And they primarily look at the book of Revelation as, well, it's just a book about future events. And I I don't really care about the future. Uh, I know where I'm going when I die anyway. I'm a child of God, so I'm not really into it. No, The book of Revelation is a very important book for us because it is literally unveiling for us who Jesus Christ really is. 
And to me, if a Christian especially does not have a proper understanding of the book of Revelation, then we do not have a complete representation and picture of who Jesus Christ is. We're only getting the Gospels and the Old Testament pre-incarnate Jesus up through the book of Jude, but we're not getting Revelation's portrait of Jesus Christ. And that is very, very important. You see, if there is one thing that I would hope every one of us would walk away from today, more than anything else, it is not a greater understanding of future events and what God has planned. The greatest hope for me is that every one of us would walk away with a greater appreciation, a greater estimation, a greater opinion, a higher view of Jesus Christ. That we would leave here being more in awe and inspired by who Jesus Christ is. That's why God gave us the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says, you'll notice there in the notes in 2 Corinthians, even though we have known Christ from such a human point of view, now we do not know Him in that way any longer. Paul's simply saying, I cannot just base how I view Jesus on the 33 years that He had humbled Himself, left His throne in glory, and came to earth and lived amongst us. I can't just view Jesus in that way. That's only giving me a partial view of who Jesus Christ really is. I have to have a complete picture of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but to me, many Christians, one of the reasons maybe why we don't have as high a view of even Jesus as we should is because every time you and I think about Jesus, the picture that we get in our minds is the guy who lived here on earth for 33 years. The one who came, humbled himself, born in Bethlehem, you know, died on a cross. And again, all of that is great. We need to remember Jesus in that way. Part of the reason why he gave us, you know, the Lord's table so that we could remember what Jesus did. But that's not the only portrait or picture of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of glory. And that's what the book of Revelation wants to bring us back to. As, you know, Tozer a great Christian author once said, in The Knowledge of the Holy, a great classic book, he said, our view of God is the most important thing that will ever enter our minds. And if you and I have a low view of God, that will affect everything about our life. That, that will color our mindset. It, it will color our perspective, everything. If we have a high view of God, a proper view of God, then that changes everything. And that's why the Bible is written to give us a very high view of God, a proper view of God. Because when you and I wake up every day and we enter into life every day, our view of God is going to change everything about our day and our week and our month and our year. And that's why the book of Revelation is so important. Notice, it is the disclosure from Jesus about Jesus belonging to Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he is the exalted one who walks among the churches. In chapter 5, he's the warrior lamb upon the throne in heaven. In chapter 19, he's the king of kings who is coming again. In fact, if you have your Bibles with you today, turn to Revelation chapter 1 and look at verse 8, 
where Jesus identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is still to come, the All-Powerful. And then over in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 17, John, the Apostle, the one who was as close to Jesus as any of his earthly disciples, In fact, remember, John was the one who leaned upon Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. If anybody was comfortable, if you will, in the presence of Jesus, it was John. It was John. And there's nothing wrong with with being comfortable in the presence of Jesus. Jesus, obviously, you know, is very accessible to all of us. But you'll notice that after John, even, saw the vision of the glorified Christ... In Revelation chapter 1, notice what he did in verse 17. I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. The vision of who Jesus is in all of his glory just sent him into this awe and wonder of, oh my goodness, you know. That's why even at the transfiguration of Jesus, Jesus just gave his disciples literally a glimpse of his glory for just a moment and they were blown away. And that's the view of Jesus we need now more than ever. Notice what Jesus goes on to say to John in John in John one or Revelation one seventeen. Don't be afraid. We'll come back to that in just a moment. He says, "I am the first and the last, the one who lives. I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades." By the way, if he's holding the keys, it means he holds the authority. See, over and over again in the book of Revelation, Revelation is giving us a disclosure, an unveiling, an uncovering of who Jesus really is. God wants us to have a high, proper view. In fact, as we grow in our Christian faith, as we grow in maturity, as we learn and grasp more and more about Jesus, we should have an ever-growing you know, opinion and estimation of Jesus. And therefore, that should drive us to worship. And then, as we say here at the Oasis, worship then drives us to the Word. Unlike today in many churches and, and cultures and, and, and circumstances, you have the worship of God and the Word of God sort of competing with each other. You have churches that are very heavy on worship and you hardly get the word. Or you have churches that are very heavy on the word and not on worship. And I find in the word of God that they're not to compete with each other. They're to complement each other. In my life, the more I know about God, the more I want to worship him. The more I want to fall down before him and serve him. And the more that I get to know him through worship the more I'm driven back to the Word because I want to continue to know more and more so that I can worship Him more and more in a proper way. So again, this is not what I want you to do, but if you left right now, I want you to know that that's the primary motivation and goal of everything that we do for the next several hours together. It is to create in all of our minds and hearts a greater view of Jesus Christ. Christ. He's the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. All right, let's get into a little bit more. So the theme 
of Revelation. The mass, majesty and glory of the warrior Lamb of God. The key verse of Revelation is Revelation 1.19. Therefore, write what you saw, what is, and what will be after these things. And you'll notice if you drop your eyes down just a little bit further on that page, you'll see the word outline and then chapter 1, verse 19. Here's why it's the key verse. It literally lays out for us the entire sort of outline plan of the whole book of Revelation. You'll notice there, the past, the things which you've seen, that's chapter 1. The present, the things which are, the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, and then the future, the things which shall be, chapters 4 through 22. In fact, now would be a good time to go into your notes and pull out that chart. Again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but here's a couple things I want you to see from this chart today. And you'll notice at the top, I have there chapter 1 and what takes place. Then chapter 2, the churches. Then chapters 4 through 22, which is predominantly the major part of the book, all that happens there. Here's what I want you to just, though, take away from this. As you look at this chart, you know what should hit us? You know, the future and even what has happened in the past and what is taking place today isn't something that's happening by chance. It's not just, you know, happenstance. That when you look at this even, just this one book of Revelation, and you see how God has it laid out, that there's a plan involved. That there's a purpose involved. That things aren't just happening because they're happening. That, that history, if you will, has always followed a plan of God. And that God is moving history towards His, His determined outcome and climax. And that's something that, again, hopefully we should take comfort in. That we don't have to sit around sort of wringing our hands wondering, oh my goodness, you know, I, I, I wonder what's going to happen and, and how this and all that's going to work out. It's all part of God's plan, you see. It's not been left to chance. It's not up to what man decides to do or doesn't do. It has always been and always will be part of a plan that God has already determined. Now again, I'm not going to take a lot of time with this today because this is not part of the study of Revelation, but I believe that God can still be absolutely sovereign in determining how things turn out and still give all of us a free will. And so God has a plan. And that plan will be carried out. You see what that plan is here in, on that paper especially. So if you go back then to the overview, a couple more things. Key words under the key verse. These words, and I want to add one today, are used more in the book of Revelation than any other book in the Bible. First of all, the word lamb, you'll see, is used 29 times in the book of Revelation. The word throne is used 44. Now let me go back to the word lamb, and we'll see this again in chapters 4 and 5. Why is the lamb used so much in the book of Revelation? Because God wants us to understand that His victory, which, by the way, has already happened 
His victory was accomplished not by a sword, but by sacrifice. He defeated hell and Satan and death and all of that, not by a sword, but by his sacrifice. When Jesus cried out on the cross, his last words, it is finished. That was it. The victory had been won. And that's something for you and I to consider, especially when we live in a day and age amongst human beings where might and power and force and all of that is is everything. Where to them and their understanding of things, you know, might is right and we're going to win by who's the strongest? Who's the most powerful? And Jesus comes along on the earth some 2,000 years ago Not then as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but as the Lamb of God. And how did God accomplish His victory through the Lamb? Through sacrifice. I think there's something in there for us. You see, I think if you and I are going to affect and impact and influence the world, it's going to be through love and sacrifice and service. Jesus Christ never held an earthly position He never had any earthly power, and yet his life still powerfully influences and impacts people to this day, including every one of us here today that know Jesus as our personal Savior. His life still powerfully affects us, yet never had any earthly goods, said, I didn't even have a place to lay my head, no earthly power, no earthly position, He made his impact through sacrifice, service, and love. There's a good lesson in there for us. The word throne, though, is important as well. Because even though he came as a lamb, this reminds us again that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's on the throne. He's always been on his throne. He will be on his throne. He is on his throne now. And nothing happens on earth or in this universe that God created that God doesn't know about and that God hasn't wrapped his arms around and that God is not in control of. It's not like something happens down here in your life or my life and God's up there going, I didn't see that coming. That just totally slipped by me. Or else, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this mess now on earth with all these nations and everything that's happening and, and look at America and oh my goodness. God's on His throne. And you and I need to remember that every day that we live. Again, high view of God. God has never abdicated His throne and never will. God is on His throne. But there's another word that I want to share with you that I didn't put in the notes that I want you to add. The other word that's found in the book of Revelation more than any other book is the word worship. (laughs) Twenty-four times the word worship is used in the book of Revelation. And again, I think that tells us something about the purpose of this book. This book was given to us so it could uncover for us who Jesus Christ is so that we would be driven to worship. If you just read the book of Revelation through all 22 chapters, you will find all the time there's scenes on earth, then they go back up to heaven. And what are they doing in heaven? They're worshiping God. Then we'll come back down to earth and you get into the scrum and then you go back up to heaven. It's like worshiping God. And what God wants his people, the church, to be doing today is to worship him as a foretaste of what's going to happen in heaven. That's why I tell people even at our church, you don't like to worship, you better get used to it because you're going to do a lot of worshiping in heaven. 
You might not want to be here, you know, during our worship time, but guess what? You're not going to have a choice when you get to heaven. And you might not like all the songs they sing up there either. And you might not like how loud they are either. I'm just saying. Because my Bible tells me that people worship God with a shout and with a loud voice and with loud instruments. Now again, I'm not saying that all of that should drown out the message of the worship. There's a time for that too. I think it's variety. Just as God created diversity in the universe and diversity in creation and diversity amongst human beings, there needs to be in a healthy community of believers a diversity of worship as well. And I think you'll see that throughout even the book of Revelation. Then you'll notice the author, the Apostle John. He identifies himself in verse 1, verse 4, and verse 9. He is the last living apostle. He was the last one alive. The rest of them had all been martyred and killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And even he tells us here in this book, in chapter 1, verse 9, I have been, you know, taken to the Isle of Patmos, basically exiled there because of my stand for Jesus Christ. So we see here that part of what John even reminds us of is that when we follow Jesus, we should serve Him. But we also must expect suffering. And that's something especially a lot of Christians are like, no, I, I, want, I want the glory part. I want all the good, and I want God to bless me, but don't ask me to serve. Don't ask me to be inconvenienced. Don't ask me to suffer. And yet the Bible clearly tells us in the book of Philippians that we were destined by God not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for Him. And even Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. Suffering is part of our life if we're going to serve and follow Jesus Christ. And we see that that certainly was true of John. And yet I want you to notice something. Isn't it cool of God that when John was all alone, and when John was going through a time of suffering at the very end of his life, he was quite old, that God gave him maybe the greatest revelation that was ever given to a human being? Isn't that the way God is a lot of times? That Even though there's times where you and I go through seasons and times of trial and suffering, that sometimes they are our greatest spiritual times? That we grow more during those hard times than we ever do when everything's going well? That somehow, you know, maybe it's our spiritual antenna or whatever, our sensitivity, that when we're going through tough times, it seems to draw us closer to God because it seems like when things are all going well, we can tend to get pretty apathetic and complacent. And so I love the fact that here's John. He's suffering. He has nobody around. Yet God was there and God came to him and God gave him this wonderful book that you and I are getting in touch with today. The purpose, well, the date of writing, we believe was sometime around the end of the first century, 90 to 96 AD. The purpose to show, again, the things which must happen very soon 
Chapter 1, verses 1 and 19. The things necessary in God's timing. The things that must come to be in God's proper order. And you'll notice in verses 19 and 20, again, that what we have here is the reminder that God has a plan. And also, notice here in verse 20, that Jesus helps His people to understand His Word. These symbols are given. And that's what, and again, sometimes people are like, I, I just don't want to get into the book of Revelation because there's so much symbolism there. But if you read it and you study it, much of the time, it's explained to you what it is if you just keep reading. Notice Jesus says in verse 20 of chapter 1, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There it is. Jesus helps us to understand his word. And he has a plan. He has a plan. He has a plan not only for this universe, for creation, for this earth. He has a plan for you. And I hope you are growing to understand what that plan and purpose is. There's not a human being that God ever created that he did not have a plan or purpose for. That's why he created the way you did. That's why he gave you the temperament and the personality and the gifts and the talents and all of that that he gave. He had a purpose and plan in mind. And, and one of the saddest things to me is that so many human beings will live their entire life on earth, however long they live, and go into eternity never realizing what God's purpose and plan for their life was. Trying to find themselves, but in finding themselves, they actually lost themselves because they never tried to find themselves within a relationship with God. And when you and I aren't connected to the one who created us, we're going to miss out. There's going to be some kind of loss there, which is, again, why God invites us to come to him. Well, we've already went over the outline, so let's get down to the bottom of that page. Other important details. You'll notice in verse 11 of chapter 1, the word see. Jesus says to John, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. So, most of Revelation is a vision that was given by Jesus to John. Another important detail, if you go over to chapter 3, verse 10, and this is one of the reasons why I have the interpretation that I do. I know there are other interpretations. I'm not going to sit here and attack those other interpretations. I'm just going to give you my interpretation today. Doesn't mean you have to agree with it. In fact, I would encourage you to go study the word for yourself and come to your own conclusions. That's what we all should do. But you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus here speaking specifically to the church at Philadelphia says, Because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I believe Jesus here is describing what you and I call the seven-year tribulation period. And the key word there from that verse is the word from, which is the Greek word ek that you see there in your notes. It literally means to exit or out from something. In other words, I believe because of this verse and other verses that I'm going to share with you this morning, and there's obviously other evidence as well, that I believe that Jesus is going to come for his church before the tribulation begins. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. In other words, to me, the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And we have no idea when that could happen. It could happen before this class 
or seminar is over today. Jesus could come in the clouds and literally take us all to be with him in heaven. He even promised in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, Jesus said, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If you don't believe in the rapture, then you don't believe in the promise of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm coming back for you so you can be with me. But after the rapture, and we're going to talk more about this, is the tribulation. And I believe that Jesus here is promising his church, you won't go through the tribulation, because that is a time of punishment and judgment. And for you and I who've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, our punishment and judgment was placed upon Christ on the cross. There is now, therefore, Paul said in Romans 8, 1, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are here today and you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ took your punishment and judgment and my punishment and judgment for my sin on himself. He was our sin bearer. And we don't have to be concerned about suffering for our sin any longer. You see. By the way, too, we'll get into this a little bit later, but the other thing about the tribulation is that it has everything to do now with God turning his attention back to the nation of Israel and away from the church. And that's another reason why I believe that the church is no longer present on earth during the tribulation period. Let me give you a couple other verses. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Listen to these words from Romans 5, verse 9. Much more then, because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath pretty clear. The tribulation period is a period where God is pouring out his wrath on the earth. Another verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse, can't see it. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not destine us for wrath, but for gaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, next. Notice the word chi in your notes at the very bottom of the page. It is translated and. Get this. this. This even came as a surprise to me. The word chi in the Greek New Testament is used 1,200 times in the book of Revelation. That's a lot. And what is it doing there so much? It is trying, John is trying to get us caught up into the sense that God is quickly and very rapidly moving history towards its ultimate climax. He'll say, and then this happens, and then there's this, and then there's this. And it's like, if you just sat down and read the book of Revelation, you would realize it's like, you just go from one thing to another as if you're like on this speeding train and you're speeding towards something, right? And I get that. I know I heard this when I was younger and I didn't believe it, but now I do, obviously, by, you know, the wisdom of experience. When people used to tell me, the older you get, the faster time goes. Can I tell you, I don't think that's even true just for getting older. I think time is just going faster. 
it just seems like the whole world and everything is just speeding towards this ultimate climax that God has planned. And that's one of the things that John wanted to convey with the frequent use of the word and. All right, go to that next, that back. I just want to point this out. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but just like if you go to a play or the theater, uh, usually in your playbill somewhere, there's the cast of characters. Well, in a sense, John does that as well in the book of Revelation. He lays out for us sort of the cast, if you will, of the book of Revelation. And uh, these two sets are two that people are very, you know, interested in. They've always been interested in what they call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four horses found in Revelation 6. They are simply the white horse, which is the Antichrist, the red horse, war, the black horse, devastation, the pale green horse, death. By the way, if you want to know more about those, you can go, if I can find it, there it is, to that chart. The chart that has at the top, content and correlation of the judgments of the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. That will be a much more in-depth study of that whole area of the book of Revelation. Then in chapter 12 and 13, the identity of the prominent characters there. The woman Israel, the mother of Christ, the red dragon Satan, the male child Jesus Christ, Michael the archangel, the rest of the children, meaning believers that will come to belief during the tribulation, the beast out of the sea, which is the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, which is the false prophet. Then, just a few more things, and we'll get into the outline, the detailed outline this morning. You'll notice other important details, at least that people get caught up with. First of all, the mark of the beast, you know? You, you hear about that. I mean, you don't even have to be in church or be a Christian to hear about the mark of the beast, right? Well, notice, it is the Greek word karagma. It literally means an engraving or cutting. You could even say a tattoo, you know, to bring it up to modern day terminology. But in some way, those that want to buy or sell during the kingdom and rule and reign of the Antichrist on earth will have to have some kind of mark. And obviously, too, you and I are living in a day and age where technology is just moving so quick we can't even keep up with it. I'm not even going to ask how many of you are going to get that iPhone 10. I know some of you are. You just can't wait till that next new big thing comes out, right? But as I said to our church a couple weeks ago, I'm sure many of you heard about the company that caused all the upheaval a few months ago that said that they were going to put a chip and all of their employees that worked there, and people were freaking out by that. And then obviously, you know, you had the barcodes uh, on everything, and now they're talking about face recognition uh, for to unlock our phones, and of course our thumbprint and all of that. And, that. and yet you have stuff like Equifax happen where, you know, people's information is all out there. I hope you realize that your information really isn't secure, right? You realize that. Our security is not in the things of earth. Our security is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our security is. All right. So, that. Then, the next big thing. The number 666. This is the number given for the people left behind to figure out who the Antichrist is. And if you study this in the book of Revelation, you will understand it must add up to 666, not just be three sixes. 
Now, here's the sad thing. Even for Christians down through history, they've always been enamored by trying to identify who the Antichrist is, and we make ourselves look silly. You know, hundreds of years ago, who's the Antichrist? Well, some people think, well, it was Nero. You know, that every bad guy or girl that exists in history, that's the Antichrist. You know, then it's, then it's Hitler, then it's this person, then it's that person. Folks, here's what the Bible clearly says. The Antichrist will not rise to power until after the rapture of the church. So can I just tell you, if you're a Christian, you don't want to know who the Antichrist is or you'll be left behind. Okay? Don't worry about it. See, here, here's my frustration. Can I just tell you? My frustration is there are more Christians are focused on who the Antichrist is instead of learning to fall more in love with who Christ is. Instead of learning to worship Jesus and fall more in love with Him and serve Him and be enamored by Him, they get caught up in the Antichrist who's going to be here for a few years and poof, he's gone. No big deal. In fact, he's only part of God's plan to bring glory and honor to Himself. We get caught up so often in our lives even with the minor things rather than majoring on the major things. And that's true when it comes to everything connected with the Antichrist. That's why if you came here today hoping that I was going to spend a lot of time trying to tell you or figure out who the Antichrist is, sorry, you came to the wrong seminar. This is going to predominantly be more about Jesus Christ than the Antichrist. Finally, you know that movie a couple years ago, Indiana Jones? You know he was looking for the Ark of the Covenant? Can I tell you, if people just knew the Word of God, they would know where the Ark of Covenant is right now. God took it back to heaven. Look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. Notice what Revelation 19 says. Then the temple of God in heaven was open, and notice what is there. The Ark of His Covenant was visible within His temple. I think Indy's going to be looking for a long time. Because my Bible tells me the Ark of the Covenant is now in heaven and will be there. Sort of like, you know, what God did with Moses. Nobody knows where God buried the body of Moses, and maybe God even took Moses back to heaven like he took Enoch up, like he took Elijah up, like Jesus ascended up. By the way, what I'm describing are all what I call other raptures in the church. The word rapture just simply means to be caught up. That's all it means. That's like when people say, well, there's no, there's no word rapture in the Bible, so I can't buy into that. Well, the word Bible's not in the Bible. And the word Sunday's not in the Bible. It doesn't mean you don't believe in it, but the description of what it is is certainly very clearly presented there, you see. And all through the Bible, God gave clues about things like just being caught up and all of a sudden being on earth and then not being on earth anymore, and being with him. Enoch walked with God, Genesis says, and then he was not. God took him. Boom. There you go. Elijah. Yeah, God sent down a, you know, a chariot, but it was still one minute he was here, the next minute he was gone. That's a rapture. That's a catching up to be with God. All right. You got the overview done. Yeah. Let's go to the detailed outline. Let's go back to Revelation 1. 
The introduction, the Christ of communication involves the first nine verses of Revelation 1. And notice here, Jesus is the God who reveals His will to His people. Now, a couple things, and I mentioned this in the overview, but I just want to read the first couple of verses here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, which must happen very soon. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. He made it clear by sending his angel to his servant, John, who then testified to everything that he saw concerning the word of God and the testimony again about Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy aloud. Blessed are those who hear and obey the things written in it because the time is near. Let me go up to the words very soon because these have tripped people up for years. And it's even added sort of fuel to skeptics. Well, you see, the Bible says he's coming back very soon and it's been thousands of years and he still hasn't come. Sort of the same thing Peter says in 2 Peter 3. There's going to be a lot of scoffers and and mockers who say, where's the promise of his coming? But that's not what these words mean. It doesn't mean soon as in, well, you know, a week later Jesus was going to come back. The words very soon mean quickly or suddenly coming to pass indicating rapidity of execution after the beginning takes place. Let me repeat that, because that's important. Very soon means quickly or suddenly coming to pass, indicating rapidity of execution after the beginning takes place. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, once it starts, look out. It's going to be boom, 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 boom. It's not going to be a drawn-out process. In fact, Jesus even said, if we as God drew out those days, who would be saved? That these days of the tribulation and whatnot are going to be so awful, He said, if we drew it out, nobody would be left. When things begin to happen, they're going to happen very, very quickly. And you and I can start to wrap our minds around that, again, because of the times in which we live. Why? Because we live in a day and age of technology where what happens in an hour can be flashed all over the world, can it? And then people start reacting to it much quicker than they used to. You know, back even a hundred years ago, it might take weeks or months for people across the world or even across the country to finally hear about something. Now it's instantaneous. Now the reaction and the response to everything that happens in the world is instantaneous. It speeds up everything, which is part of the reason why we feel like we're sort of moving on a bullet train towards something, because everything really is happening faster. Because when it happens, the reaction and response of everyone is immediate. That's what the words mean, very soon. That's why it's, you know, you and I, if somebody is contending with us about the fact that, well, Jesus said he was coming soon, but it's like, well, that's not what those words mean. Those words mean that when God starts to unfold his plan that he laid out in the book of Revelation, those events are going to be literally pancaked on top of each other, and there's not going to be time to breathe. That people are going to go from one thing to another very, very rapidly. Notice in verse 3, do you know that the book of Revelation, all 66 books of the Bible are awesome, 
And any book that you and I read and study and meditate on and learn and all of that and grow in, we're blessed, okay? Because it's the Word of God. And the book of Proverbs says every Word of God is given to us, spoken by God, to refine us. But, do you know that the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that specifically has a blessing for those who read it and study it and hear it? And that's what's a shame is even there's so many Christians who go, oh, that book of Revelation is so hard, I, I don't even want to get into it. You're missing a blessing. You're missing a blessing. And what is a blessing? A blessing is when God entrusts to us what is of greatest worth and value. That's what a blessing is. Because even Christians sometimes like, I want God to bless me. Do you know what that means? Because when God blesses a person, it means he entrusts us with what is of greatest worth and value. Well, then why is reading and studying and hearing the book of Revelation a blessing? Because God is laying out for us who Jesus Christ really is. And is there anything of greater worth or value to us, especially if we call ourselves a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, than knowing more about who Jesus is and growing in our understanding of him? And having a higher view, a higher estimation, a higher opinion of who Jesus is, is that not the greatest thing God could entrust to us? Absolutely it is. And that's why he promises a blessing to us. You'll also notice in verse 4 that we have the Trinity in verse 4 and 5. You'll notice... From John to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from he who is, he who was, and he who is still to come. I believe that's a reference to God the Father. Then from the seven spirits who are before his throne, I believe that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. You say, how do you get that? Because if you study the Word of God, you find out many places in the Old and New Testament where the Spirit is described as a sevenfold Spirit. In fact, look at uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. You have listed there in that verse the sevenfold aspect of the Holy Spirit of God. And then obviously in verse 5, oh, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Can I just repeat that? Even Christians today, oh my goodness, I'm so afraid. I'm so frightened. There's that nut over there in North Korea and what's going to happen and all that. Can I tell you, my Bible tells me that there's no king, no president, no prime minister, nobody who is in any kind of power position in the earth, that Jesus Christ is not over. And that's why, can I tell you, over in verse 17, it is very important that you and I lock eyes with the, this phrase. After John falls at the feet of Jesus as though he were dead, Jesus places his right hand on John and says four words. Do not be afraid. Because if you and I really knew who Jesus was, if we really had a proper estimation and opinion if we were truly in all of Jesus Christ, the things that are happening on earth and happening around us wouldn't scare us. Because we know Jesus got this. He's on the throne. He's in control. There are no rulers on earth that's going to do anything 
that somehow again takes Jesus by surprise and that he doesn't see coming and hasn't planned for to begin with. The ruler of the kings of the earth. So that's the introduction, the first nine verses. Then I want to get to the Christ of the churches. Chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 3, verse 22. He is the God who rebukes and refreshes His churches. I want you to note something. Notice in verse 13, the Bible tells us that He is the one in the midst of the lampstands. And then we know from His own mouth that the lampstands are what? The churches. So guess where Jesus is? He's in the midst of His churches. Then if you go over to chapter... Um, I can't see it here. Sorry. Chapter 2, verse 1. You will notice it says, He is the one, Jesus, who walks among the seven lampstands. Here's what I want to say about all of this. You'll even notice in the first couple of verses of Revelation 1. When God sends and wants to send a message of revelation from himself through his servant John, where does he send it to? Does he send it to some Christian organization? No. He sends it to local churches. Seven historical local churches. And again, if you know Pastor Jeff, you know me well enough to know that we are living in the age... In fact, I shared this last Sunday, where the church, the local church, is experiencing a decline and decay. Church attendance numbers continue to go down and down year after year. There is less of an engagement and involvement with the local church as every year passes. Even Christians are becoming less and less interested in being part of a community of believers that regularly gather together. And can I tell you, you and I cannot be truly part of what Jesus is doing on earth unless we are part of His church. Because Jesus said, you want to know what I'm going to be doing? I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if you and I want to be part of what Jesus' plan and purpose is, then you and I have got to be part of a church. I'm not telling you you have to be part of the Oasis. If you don't have a church, I certainly welcome you here. But what I am saying is, find a church that glorifies Jesus Christ, that teaches His Word, that focuses on worship and the Word, and get in there and become a viable part of that church. And you will find that as you and I do that, that we will truly be right at the center of what Jesus Christ is doing. Why? Because Jesus' plan, God's plan has always been, I'm going to work through my church. First and foremost. Not through this organization and that organization. It's not that they don't have any place, but the church has got to take the priority of our Christian life. And sad to say for many Christians, that's not the case. The church is sort of the last thing in the priority. You see here in Revelation the primacy and priority of the church with God. When He wants to get a message out, He sends it through His messengers to His people who are sitting in churches, just like the seven that are here in the book of Revelation. 
a couple of things of note. I'm not going to take too much time to go down through here, but each of these seven messages from Jesus to the churches have a few things in common that I do want to point out. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 2, you'll notice the words, I know. Then if you go down to chapter 2, verse 9, to the letter to Smyrna, he says, I know. Then verse 13 of chapter 2, the church at Pergamum, I know. Verse 19, the church at Thyatira, I know. Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, I know your deeds. Chapter 3, verse 8, the church at Philadelphia, I know your deeds. Finally, chapter 3, verse 15, Laodicea, I know. And what's that tell us? Jesus knows as the Lord God exactly what's going on in every church. He knows everything about the church. He knows what's happening in that church. He knows everything. And that's why Jesus is the perfect one to come along to the church and say, there's some things you're doing well. And I commend you for that. But there's some things in your church that you're not doing well that need correcting. Because Jesus has perfect knowledge. How does Jesus have perfect knowledge? Because he's God. Because he is omniscient and he's omnipresent. He knows all and he sees all. Just like he does with our lives, he knows the life of his church. And he cares about it. Which is why, before the tribulation begins, he wants to send a message to his church. Because he wants his church, his people, to rise up and be what? A light. That's why he calls the churches a lampstand. He wants us to be a light in our communities. He said, I'm the light of the world. Then later on, he tells his believers, you're the light of the world. I want you to let your light shine. And that's what every Christian and every local church should be. We should be a lampstand or a lighthouse in our community, shining out the light of God in a world of darkness. Which, by the way, now's as good a time as any. Every one of you got a postcard, another one, inviting all of you who came today to another seminar that we're going to do in November on a Saturday, November the 4th. This is a seminar that will teach you how to get more out of your study of the Word of God, which can I just tell you, I think every Christian should take. And some of you have already taken this course because my son is going to teach it. My son, if you've never taken a class from my son, I would encourage you to do so, not just because he's my son, because I really think he knows his stuff. He just graduated with his Master of Theology from Biola University. He has his undergraduate degree in Biblical Studies. And I will tell you this, even if you've taken this class from my son before, you will want to take it again that day because he's totally revamping the class, making it new, making it fresh. I guarantee you this, no person could come to this class, talking about light, you, I guarantee you could not come to this class, listen to what my son has to teach about understanding the Bible better, and walk away with tools, or not walk away with tools that will help you get more out of every time you open up the Bible. I guarantee it. So I would encourage you to come that day. A light. A light. Then notice another thing that's Verse 7 of chapter 2, Jesus says again to the church at Ephesus, you better hear 
what the Spirit is saying to the church. Chapter 2, verse 11. You better hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Chapter 2, verse 17. You better hear. Chapter 2, verse 29. You better hear. Chapter 3, verse 6. You better hear. Chapter 3, verse 18. Hear. Chapter 3, verse 22. Hear. Why am I repeating that? Because Jesus is saying to every church, are you listening? Are you really listening? Grasping. We know how frustrating that can be in our lives. Whether it's if we're married with our spouses or with our children or with our parents or with our friends or whatever. Isn't it frustrating sometimes when you say, I told you something, you just weren't listening. Isn't that frustrating? That's what Jesus is saying. saying, church, I've told you these things. Are you really listening to me? Are you really getting it? Because based upon some of the things that's happening in these churches, Jesus is saying, I don't think you've heard me. So that's a big thing too. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 7, here's the other repeated phrase to his church. To the one who conquers. You'll see this in every message to the church. To the one who conquers, chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who conquers, chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 26. Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 21. Conquers, conquers, conquers. What's Jesus saying to his church? He's saying this. In me, you can be an overcomer. A conqueror. The Greek word is Nike, where, where the shoe company gets the Nike. Victory, conqueror, overcomer. Jesus saying, I don't want you just to wear the shoe. I want you to become a conqueror, an overcomer. I want you to have victory in your life, which means this. It means that God is not going to spare us from seasons of trial and suffering and trouble. Jesus even said in John 16, 33, in the world you'll have trouble and suffering, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's why even for a Christian, it means we're going to have challenges and obstacles and, and opposition and persecution and all these things. Why? Because God wants to show each of us and us as a church that we can overcome in Him. That, see, here's what we want. Like the commercial, we want the life that has the easy button. God, I just want to be, I want you to remove all the hard things. I want you to remove all the suffering. I want you to remove all the hurdles and challenges. And God says, no, that's not my plan for you or for your church. My plan for you and your church is that you will have hurdles and opposition and challenges, but that you will learn in me to be able to rise above them and go over them and be an overcomer. And so when Jesus is promising his people here in his church, these are the rewards to the overcomers. He's trying to encourage us, don't just settle for the easy. Don't try to, you know, go the easy route. Go the route that I have led you on and be willing to conquer, to overcome, to meet the challenges head on and to rise above those challenges and to get over them 
through me. Which is why Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the message. Again, why? Because if we live that way, then we have a high view of Jesus. Then we have a proper, because then we're like, you know what? With, I can't do it on my own, but with Jesus, there's nothing I can't overcome. Nothing I can't have victory over. So many Christians today are living in bondage and captivity to things, whether it's attitudes or other things. They're, they're in the grip of something. And Jesus is saying, with me, if you will just let me and you meet this head on, we can overcome this. We can have victory. And to those that will live overcoming things, you're going to be greatly rewarded. Greatly rewarded. As many of you know, I've played sports for many years. And even looking back, even though it's been many years ago now, the most rewarding years of playing sports for me were the years that were provided the hardest challenge to us as a team. Maybe it was an unexpected injury to a star player or something like that, and people just sort of discounted, say, oh, well, it's going to be a bad year, right? Those were the years it was like, you know what? No, we're not going to let that define us. We're going to come together, and we're going to work as hard as ever. We're going to practice longer. We're going to stay after practice longer. We're going to be in the weight room even longer, and we're going to do everything we can to meet that challenge. And those years that we won a championship, they were ever sweeter. They meant more because of all that we had to do to overcome to get there. And Jesus saying, I want my people to have that kind of attitude and mindset. It's not the easy life that's the best life for us. It's the life where we follow Jesus Christ all the way and meet every challenge and opposition and obstacle that's put in our way. And know that with Jesus Christ, nothing is impossible. All things are possible with God. That's his message to his church. And so I hope that we will heed that message. All right, let's move on in the last half hour before lunch to the Christ of the cosmos. Chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 16, verse 21. He is the God who reclaims the earth for His kingdom. Turn with me to chapter 4. And here's where things begin to take a turn. The church is no longer mentioned in the book of Revelation after chapter 3. That's it. I believe that's because the church isn't here any longer. I believe that everything in, that takes place from chapter 4, verse 1 through the rest of the book has to do with future and has to do with the church already being in heaven. So, you may say, well, I'm a Christian. That means I'm going to be in heaven. So, what's the rest of the book then have to practically do for me? It still builds for us a true picture of who Jesus is in all of His glory and that's why we need to make sure that we get what's happening in these next chapters. In fact, notice in chapter 4. Remember I told you that the word throne is used 44 times in the book of Revelation? Well, guess what? It's used 16 times just in chapter 4 and 5. It begins in chapter 4, verse 2. John was caught up in the Spirit and notice, what did he see? A throne was standing in heaven and someone was seated on it. 
In chapter 4, verse 3, there were these things that encircled the throne. Then verse 4, in a circle around the throne. Verse 5, from the throne. Front of the throne, verse 5. In front of the throne. In the middle of the throne, verse 6. Over and over and over again. Why? Because John is painting us a picture that Jesus is king over all things. He is worthy. And then in chapter 5, you have a picture of the Lamb and the Lion of the tribe of Judah coming and basically taking this scroll out of the hand of the one who is seated on the throne, which I believe is God the Father. What's happening here? Very quickly. This scroll has contained in it the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowl judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth. And I believe that Jesus Christ here, it's picturing for us, that He is reclaiming the earth for His kingdom. You say, reclaiming the earth? When did He lose it? Well, He never really lost control over it, obviously. But, in the plan of God, if you go back to the book of Genesis, God said, I'm going to create this wonderful earth, and then I'm going to tell Adam and Eve, you have dominion over it. You rule over it. This is what I'm entrusting to you. I want you to be my vice regents over the earth. And I want you to rule and reign the earth in my stead. That was always God's plan for God's people. But we know what happened. Sin came into the human race. And when sin came into the human race, Satan swooped in too and grabbed a hold, if you will, of managing the fallen world at that point. That's why the Bible says that the devil is the god of this world. You see. And man lost his ability to be able to rule and govern the world as God intended. So what was God's plan all along? God's plan all along was, well, guess what? I'm going to redeem that for them. I'm going to make sure that in my plan, there's going to come a point in history where I can entrust them with ruling over the earth once again. But in order to do that, I've got to put down all opposition and rebellion to my rule on this earth and clear that all out so that I can then hand off the earth once again to these people who will rule the earth as part of my kingdom. And that's exactly what's happening in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5. What's awesome about this is, as John sees this vision, you see this sort of search go out into all the universe. Because it's like, well, who's worthy, the Bible says here in Revelation 4 and 5. Who's worthy to open up the seals and to reclaim the earth? Who's worthy? And the Bible says a search was made. There was a search there and a search under the earth and a search on the earth. And the Bible says they couldn't find anybody who was worthy to open up the seals and to make this happen. Until the Bible says the lion of the tribe of Judah. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 5. John says, I began weeping bitterly because no one who was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look on it. Literally in the original it says, John was sobbing audible sobs. Here's a grown man who's just, he is losing it. Because he understands something. 
if we don't find anybody who's worthy to open this scroll and begin to unloose these seals and reclaim the earth back for God, then we've all lost. We've all lost for all of you. And we will never, never be able to rule and reign again. We will never fulfill our destiny as God's creation. Never. And then notice, someone steps forward. One of the elders, verse 5, and said to John, stop weeping. Literally. Stop your crying. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the divine warrior, the root of David, and notice this, has conquered. Past tense. Thus he can open the scroll and its seals. I want to direct your attention again to that word, conquered. It literally means he overcame. He was victorious. Everything that man and Satan threw against Jesus, Jesus overcome. Everything. Including the cross. Including death. He died. He overcame everything. And he's telling us as his followers, follow me in my victory. Follow me as I overcome and you will learn to overcome as well. That's why Paul told, told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession. Always. If we just will follow Jesus, we will learn to be an overcomer and a conqueror like Him. He conquered. And again, how did Jesus conquer? He didn't conquer by sword. He conquered death and hell and Satan and all of that through sacrifice. So what follows now in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19 is the culmination of a victory already won. Then we move to chapter 6. Oh, by the way, let me just say this. Before we move on to chapter 6, notice verse 12 and verse 13. What are they doing? They're worshiping. They are singing in a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honor, glory, and ruling power forever and ever. You see, in heaven, what are they doing? They're worshiping. They are worshiping God. They are singing with a loud voice. i I, I got to tell you, I've already told our worship leader here at the Oasis, I want you to know, Nicole, here's one of my goals. I'm putting in a goal for this Saturday that these folks who come to this seminar from the Oasis will be so on fire to worship God tomorrow that they will get there early, that they will get there on time, that they will be in the auditorium, not in the lobby, and they will be ready like ever to worship the Lord, singing in a loud voice. Because guess what? Guess what? That's what they're doing in heaven. That's what they're doing in heaven. That's what they're doing right now in heaven. While you and I are here, they are worshiping God singing praises to Him, honoring Him. That's part of what heaven is all about. And that's what John wants to get into our head. 
Do we truly know who Jesus is? Do we truly appreciate who Jesus is? Do we still think of Jesus as that humble carpenter from Nazareth who wore the long robe and the, and the sandals and, you know, walked around uh, Palestine and did miracles? And yeah, he was powerful. But is that our only image of Jesus? Or is our image of Jesus the one that Revelation is portraying? The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The Almighty. The first and the last. The one who has the keys of death and hell. Is that the image of Jesus that we have? So beginning in chapter 6, all the way through chapter 19, we have a description here of what's called the tribulation. And again, you can refer at some point in your own time to that chart. This one, the content and correlation of the judgment of the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. That's the tribulation period. It takes place between, I believe, the rapture of the church and the millennial kingdom, which we'll talk about after lunch. It is also known as Daniel's 70th week, as the time of Jacob's trouble, and the day of the Lord. You will see all of those phrases in the Old and New Testament. Sometimes the tribulation is called Daniel's 70th week, which, by the way, reminds us that it has nothing to do with the church. It has everything to do with there was still a week of years, seven-year period, that God had to turn His attention back to Israel because Israel's not the church and the church is not Israel. They are two separate entities. And God one day is going to turn His attention, once the church is in heaven, back to Israel for one more seven-year period. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. Why is it called Jacob's trouble? Because it's dealing with the nation of Israel, the Jews. It's not dealing with the church, because the church is in heaven. And it's called the day of the Lord. Now, a couple things to keep in mind. This seven-year period will begin with a covenant being made between Antichrist and Israel. That's what marks the beginning of the tribulation. You learn about that in the book of Daniel. Our study today is not in Daniel, so we're not going to take time to go to Daniel and go through all that, right? I couldn't get through Revelation. Daniel is where you will find all that information. That's what marks. You see, there, there is no event that needs to happen before the rapture. It could happen, like I said, before we leave here today. But the tribulation will start with a specific event. And that is the peace treaty or covenant that the Antichrist at that time will make with the nation of Israel. The covenant will also reestablish sacrifice in Israel, which obviously presupposes that the temple will be rebuilt in some form, which any of you that keep up on what's going on in Israel already know that they have already have plans to rebuild the temple. They actually have a priestly line that's already lined up to start having sacrifices. The priestly garments have already been made. All of this has already happened in the nation of Israel. They are just waiting for some event to so shake the Middle East that they will be allowed to, in some form, rebuild the temple and start the sacrificial system over again. By the way, as I shared Sunday, 
One of the greatest signs that we are living in the last days was the rebirth of the nation of Israel. For those of you that weren't here to hear that which happened on May 14th, 1948. Why? Because every end-time prophecy assumed an Israel back in the land. And for 1,900 years, spread out over to 70 countries, Jewish people were spread out in all the corners of the world for 1,900 years. God miraculously, supernaturally brought them back and established them as a nation in one day which is what the prophet Isaiah predicted. Can a nation be born in one day? Yes, it was. And I know for many of you here, some of you were alive May 14th, 1948. For many of you, you weren't even born yet. But I want to tell you something. Israel being a nation back in the land is huge because no, old no prophecy of end times could happen without an Israel back in the land. But... In the middle of the tribulation period, that covenant between the Antichrist and Israel will be broken by the Antichrist. And the Bible says that the Antichrist will then enter the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, set himself up as God, and demand by the world to be worshipped as God, which is what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist basically blasphemes God and assumes himself to be God. That's the midpoint of the tribulation period. You say, well then, what's the final event of the tribulation? The Battle of Armageddon, which we will talk about after lunch. All right, so you've got seven-year tribulation. What starts the tribulation? The covenant made between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. What marks the middle of the tribulation? The breaking of the covenant by the Antichrist with the nation of Israel. What ends the seven-year tribulation? The battle of Armageddon. And then we enter into the millennial kingdom. Again, all of those details about the judgments that are being poured out on the earth are given to us from chapter 6 through chapter 19. Now, real quick... Where is it? I want you to go to this page. It says the tribulation and revelation. I want you to see something this morning that might help you as you read and study the book of Revelation. There are three sets of judgments, which by the way, we're going to see in a moment who's opening the seals and pouring out the judgment. It's the Lamb. See, some people again have this picture of Jesus. Oh, Jesus... He's just all love, and he's just all nice, and Jesus would never judge anything, and yeah, he will. Again, incomplete picture of who Jesus is. You got the one side of Jesus down, but you don't have the complete picture of Jesus. That would be just like how you get frustrated, or I get frustrated when people misrepresent us, because they're only getting a portion of who we are. They think they know who we are, because they see this about us, and so they say, well, that's who they are. And you and I are going, wait a minute, we're probably like, well, that's not all that I am. I'm also this and this. See, that, that's, I'm sure, how Jesus feels most of the time whenever people say, well, I, I know who Jesus is. He's this. And he's probably going, well, yeah, I am that. I am that. But I'm also this too. And I'm also this too. So don't misrepresent me. Don't have an incomplete picture of who I am. So in these judgments, here's what I want you to note. 
And I drew a diagram down here to help maybe make a little bit more sense. These judgments sort of flow into each other. What I mean by that, and I described it up here, as like a telescope. Pulling a telescope out. Because as the sealed judgments are poured out, when you get to the seventh seal, you'll notice there in the diagram, the seventh seal then opens up the seven trumpets. You see that? The seven trumpets are, in a sense, included in the seventh seal. Then the seventh trumpet is what unlocks the seven bowls. So the seven bowls are included in the seventh trumpet. So they all sort of connect in some way to each other. They're just sort of concurrent and they roll out. Now, I do put there something very important. If you go down to that second paragraph there, before that diagram, at the very bottom, the last two sentences, this would indicate, though, both an increase in intensity and a greater rapidity of the judgments as the end of the period approaches. That's why this diagram may be helpful in understanding this arrangement. So, things will get worse and worse and worse as we get closer to the Battle of Armageddon on earth, but they will be unfolded in that way. So just for a few moments, before we stop for lunch, I want you to go back to chapter 6. John says, after going up to heaven and seeing the worship of, of God, then he says, I looked on when the... Who's opening the seals? The Lamb. Jesus. Who is pouring out judgment on the earth? Jesus. Jesus is, you see. That's very important. Because again, so many people have an unbiblical view of Jesus Christ. Yes, God is a God of love. But God also says in His Word, you need to have a balanced view of who I am. And I have told you before, God so loved the world. In other words, any human being that wants to have a relationship with me can. But, but, I am also a God of truth. And I am telling you that the only way to have a relationship with me is through my Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus even said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, you may not like that. That, that. that may not hit you well. Can I just tell you, I'm not here to hit you well. I, I'm not here to, you know, I'm here to speak the truth of God's Word. It's up to you what you do with it and how you respond to it. But one day, I believe I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account of my ministry. And I don't want to stand before God and say, I didn't, I didn't teach Him the truth, God. I didn't teach Him your word. I'm sorry about that. So, God is a God of love, but He's also a God of truth. And God will never compromise His truth. Never. And so God is saying to all those who now live on the earth, who live in rebellion against Him, if you don't want me to be king over you, fine. Fine. 
Have it your way. Which is really what he's been saying for the last thousand, couple thousand years anyway. He doesn't force anybody to come into a relationship with him. But he does invite everyone to come into a relationship with him. And he says, come. Come. Will you come? Well, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our second half today. God, you are so good to us. And your word reminds us, God, that every good and every perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of lights. And so, God, we just want to pause for a moment and we want to count our blessings. Because, Lord, we know that there are many brothers and sisters in Christ, people that we will see and be with throughout all of eternity that do not get the opportunities that we have today to come freely to a place like this and come together as your people and learn your word. That, Lord, they're in hiding and they're persecuted. And some of them are even martyred and having their lives taken because they are followers of Jesus Christ. So God, help us to understand the great opportunity and privilege we have as we sit here in this school cafeteria today and think about how many Christians all over the world would love to have the opportunities that we have here to do what we're doing today and to even eat the food that we're doing here today. So many people, Lord, go hungry, don't even know where their next meal comes from. So Lord, thank you for all that you've provided for us. But most of all, God, thank you for providing your son Jesus to us. That Lord, through him and his sacrifice on the cross and the blood that he shed, that Lord, we can have a relationship with you and that we can know Lord, where we're going to go when the rapture happens or when we die. And we know, God, it has nothing to do with our performance, but it's by grace we are saved through faith. And God, I just pray that as long as you allow us to be on this earth, before you come back, or before we go to meet you in death, that God, we would remember what a great and big God you are. And that we would live big because we serve a big God. And that we would not allow ourselves or even others to define who we are and what we become and what we can do. But we let God, you alone, define us. That we let our lives be what you wanted it and what you created us to be. Help us not to put you in a box and put ourselves in a box. But Lord, may you be high and lifted up. These things we ask in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 7. Reminder, I believe that you and I, the church, we are in heaven. And now the tribulation period has begun. But even then, notice in chapter 7 that God is calling forth 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And He is sealing them. 12,000 from every one of the tribes of Israel. And He is sending them forth into the world. Why? Because I believe that even during the darkest time of history, that seven-year tribulation, the time where even Jesus said, 
It will not be like any other time ever has been on the earth that there will still be a light for God. And there will still be a remnant of people who will come to believe in God and know God through His gospel. And that God will still be seeking to reach people even during the darkest days of human history. Now, that's not what anybody should be waiting on. Nobody should go, well, I'll just wait and accept Jesus when we get into the tribulation. First of all, you're putting yourself in a bunch of unnecessary suffering. Because from my understanding of the Bible, though people will come to believe in Jesus during the tribulation period, I believe almost all of them will be martyred and killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. The Antichrist will make sure of that. So it's much better to know Jesus now and go up with Him in the rapture. As bad as we might think it's getting even now on the earth, we can't even begin to imagine how bad it's going to get in just a short amount of time when all true believers from all over the world are raptured and caught up to heaven and taken off the earth. And by the way, I wasn't necessarily planning on saying this, but even years ago, can you not, you almost, in in a weird way, at least maybe that's just me, but I have a weird way. I mean, I obviously, like Paul, I want to go and be with Jesus. It's far better. But there's a little part of me that just wants to be on earth for just a second to see what's the news going to say about that. How are they going to handle that story? Now, here's, here's, and again, this is not biblical, so it's just part of Pastor Jeff's speculation. And you know me, I'm not about speculating everything, but I think it's pretty obvious in the day and age in which we live and all the fascination with aliens and everything. To me, it's pretty easy. The explanation could be, well, aliens just abducted them all and just took them out of the world, and that's, that's what happened to all of them. We were just taken by aliens somewhere, and Nobody knows where we, we're going. In fact, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't immerse myself in it because I don't think a Christian should, but I do try to pay enough attention to even the news and what's going on in the world and even in the entertainment world because it gives me a little insight even into what's thinking. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but so many even movies and television shows have some kind of like, almost like, uh, catastrophe about them. It's like even unbelievers and people who don't even claim to believe in God, they're, they're starting to even put out things to where the more and more their mind is on the end of the world and cataclysms and the apocalypse and all of these things. You, you can see it in our media today. The thing I want you to know is this. God will still be reaching people because of the power of His Word even in the darkest days of human history. We must not discount the power of the Word of God, which is why God calls us to speak His Word. There is power in the Word. The book of Hebrews says, the Word of God, because it's God's Word, is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, getting into the joints and marrow of our very being, That's the power of the Word of God. And Paul said to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul said to the Corinthians, that though 
Those that are perishing, the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness, but unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do not discount the power of God's Word. In our lives, and even as you share, remember, big God, powerful Word, God's Word can work. Send His Word out into the world. Be a light however you can. You'll notice the worship of God, even in chapter 7. There's this constant sort of ping-pong effect in the book of Revelation so that we don't get so bogged down, if you will, by the awful things that are happening on earth, we are then directed back up to heaven. And then we spend a little time there sort of getting ourselves re-entered. Oh yeah, God, He's on His throne. There's worship. He's a great big God. We've got to remember that. Then we come back down to sort of the, the scrum, if you will, on earth. So you'll notice in chapter 7, verse 9, after these things, I looked and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language. I love that. Because why? They're in heaven. And it reminds us that God does love the whole world. And that one day in heaven there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every culture, every dialect, every skin color, every person group will be represented in heaven. Because the only thing that is necessary to get there is faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, they stand before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Then if you go down to verse 12, the angels were there, living creatures, I believe angelic beings were there. All around the throne again. And what are they doing? They are worshiping God. Saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now again, where did these people come from? And notice what it says in verse 14 of chapter 7. This is very important. These are ones who have come out of the great tribulation. There will be people saved and come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation period. Again, not something we should desire for us or for anyone that we know because of the awful things that will be taking place and what they would go through for their faith in Christ. And we cannot discount, and we're going to talk about this in just a minute, there's also that biblical principle that when a human being has hardened their heart to God, and it said no to the offer of the gospel over and over again, there comes a point where their conscience is seared and where their heart becomes so hard that no matter what God does, they are incapable of coming to Him. Not because God does not want them to come to Him, but because they have placed themselves in a position where they just refuse no matter what things God has done. And so we see that here in chapter 7. Then I want you to look at chapter 8. Again, who is opening up the seventh seal? It is the Lamb. And because of what is about to take place, notice the first time we believe in all of eternity, from eternity past to the very first time that God created the angels and they started to worship Him, up until now, there has never been total silence in heaven. Never. 
There's always been some kind of activity and worship in heaven. But now, for the very first time, what is about to happen is so serious and so sobering and somber that the Bible even says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That half hour probably seems like an eternity. As everybody even in heaven is just like waiting, if you will, for that other shoe to fall upon the earth. Now, I want you to go over to chapter 9. Again, we're not going to take a lot of time to go through all of these judgments in detail. You have the details of these judgments in that chart. You can look at them for yourself. They're, they're, pretty, they're pretty awful. They're pretty horrendous what's going to happen on the earth. But here's what I want you to see. In spite of all that God is doing, because many times I've even heard from people, well, if God just, if God just manifested Himself in a, in a better way, if He made Himself more visible, if, if people really knew there was a God and there were consequences for not believing and all that, I believe people would come to God in droves, right? No. No, look at chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. These verses, along with another one that I'm going to show you, show us the hardness of the human heart. Because the Bible teaches us that in spite of all the judgments being poured out on the world, and not only that, not just the judgments of God, but think about what's going on even between humanity here. That the Antichrist is now in charge. And that there's just... You know, we think human beings treat each other terrible now, and they do. Jesus even said, as we get closer to the end, the love of many people on earth is going to grow cold. I hate to tell you, but we're in that right now, right? I mean, love is growing colder and colder, and people are becoming more and more cruel to each other, and there's more and more violence, and people lose their temper quicker and people have a shorter fuse it's part of the reason why we have you know the road rage that we do and people just up and just killing people over even the slightest of offense why is there all this anger and and bitterness and rage and frustration i'm telling you it is the work of not only the demonic forces but it is the rem or the result of of human beings who have turned their backs on God and on His love. And there's no love in their life, and there's no love in their heart, and therefore they treat each other very, very coldly and cruelly. And we can only imagine how that's going to multiply during the tribulation period. But, the Bible says in spite of all that, chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of humanity, who had not been killed by these plagues already, did not repent of the works of their hands so that they did not stop worshiping demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk about. Furthermore, they did not repent of their murders, of their magic spells, of their involvement with sorcery and the occult, of their sexual immorality, or of their stealing didn't repent. All they would have had to do, because all the word repent means is to, to change my mind towards something that results in a change of behavior. And all they would have had to do is say, what has this lifestyle gotten me? 
All it has, all it has brought me in my life is pain and misery and loss. I've gained nothing from this kind of lifestyle that I'm living. All the choices that I've made apart from God and without God and living as if God does not exist. Where has it gotten me? But do they repent? Do they change their mind and head in another direction? No. They are stubborn. They are willful. They are hard-hearted. They continue to hold on to their sin and their sinfulness even though God is offering them a way out. And when you think about that, do we not again see that happening in our world today? Though God offers people a way out and a way beyond what they're dealing with, so many people want to, as painful as it is, I'm going to hold on to what I want to do and when I want to do it, and I'm going to hold on to all this rather than accept the life that God gives. Well, one other verse that illustrates that, and you can see this other places in the book of Revelation. I want you to go over to chapter 16, verse 11, for just a moment. As we even get further into the tribulation, and things get even worse, notice what it says in chapter 16, verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their suffering. So in other words, what that tells us also is, they know where these judgments are coming from. They know who's, who's pouring out the judgment. It's God. They understand that. They comprehend that. They get that. But the Bible says they nevertheless still refused to repent of their deeds. No change. No change. Now again, let me make this real practical and relevant for us. Do we not know people? That no matter how much we plead with them and we pray for them and pray over them and what and, and even and we even know we see the pain that they're going through because of their choices. We see the hurt in their life because of their lifestyle and the choices they made. But they refuse to give it up. We see that today. And here's the thing that might really sort of come home. Do we not see that at times in our own life? Where God's Spirit, hear what the Spirit is saying, is speaking to us, saying, Jeff, you got to go a different way. You got to make a different choice, Jeff, because as long as you keep doing that, you're only hurting yourself and others all around you. You got to give that up. No, God. I'm going to hang on to it for a little while longer. And again, at any time, through Jesus, we could be an overcomer. We could see victory. We could conquer with His power and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our life. But so many people want to hold on and hang on to their stuff rather than let it go. The Spirit of God is telling us today, let it go. Turn your life over to Jesus. Turn that area of your life over to Jesus and let Him begin to work. Let Him begin to heal. Let Him begin to bring change and transformation into your life rather than holding on to those things that cause such pain. What we see already is only going to be multiplied during the tribulation period. You see, many people think, again, because they have a misunderstanding of God, 
that somehow people who end up going into a, an eternity without God, it's somehow because God doesn't want them to be part of His eternity. But that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the message of the Bible. God doesn't want to see anyone that He ever created. And by the way, let's be reminded of that. God is the one who created every human being who's ever lived. You and I can't even imagine what that's like. I mean, even as parents, we, we have love for our children and our grandchildren, but we didn't actually create them. God does love every human being ever created. And they will not go into eternity unloved, and they will not go into eternity without God because God didn't want them to be a part of His eternity. They go into eternity because of the hardness of their heart. They refuse to come God's way. They refuse to do things God's way. And they don't want God's way. They want their way. So God says, okay, you want to do life your way? There you go. Have at it. And you, wanna, you don't want me to be part of your eternity? Fine. I'll create a place where you don't have to have me at all and where you can exist for all of eternity with everybody else who doesn't want me to. Sobering things to think about in the book of Revelation. Now I want to take you down to chapter 11 for just a moment. This is a chapter that talks about these two witnesses. And we're not going to take a lot of time because again, just like with the identity of the Antichrist, there have been so many speculations about, well, who are these two witnesses? They sound a little bit like the same, they have the same powers that Moses and Elijah had in the Old Testament. And the Bible clearly says that in some form, Moses and Elijah may return at some point in the last days. That, that could be a good guess, but we cannot be definitive or dogmatic about that. Some people think it could be Zerubbabel and Joshua from the book of Zechariah, the high priest and, uh, and the king. We don't know who these two witnesses are, but what we do know is this. God not only sends out 144,000 witnesses, He sends out these two special witnesses to His holy city, to the city of Jerusalem, to, to witness about Him during the tribulation period again. And these two witnesses possess power and authority to carry out their mission even during the tribulation period. Can you believe it? I mean, you can imagine the Antichrist just wants to kill him, but he can't until their mission for God is done. And what I, why I wanted to bring that up is you and I need to relate to that too. That you and I need to even understand on this side of the tribulation that you are invincible and immortal until your mission on earth is done. Until God says, come home and be with me. I don't care what forces are against you. The Bible says no weapon formed against us will succeed if we are a child of God that you've got to understand that there is a power inside of you and a power behind you that is protecting you and providing for you and watching over you. And there is nothing going to happen to you until God says, okay, come be with me now, my child. Your mission is now done. These guys were standing in Jerusalem. And the reason we know that the world hated them, is I don't know whether you ever saw this or not when you read through Revelation, but they literally invented a new holiday during the tribulation. It was called Happy Dead Prophets Day. You think I'm kidding. 
Look down here at verse 8. Or verse 7. After three and a half years, they prophesied. And then the Bible says, when they completed their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And God will allow that because that's part of his plan. But can I tell you, why does God allow that? Because God wants to show everyone that though it might seem as if evil or the devil or darkness is winning for a time, ultimately God wins. God has the last word. Just like with Jesus. I mean, I really think in some way the devil thought, I won when Jesus was crucified and died on the cross. I really think that they had a little, like, party, like the demons, and like, we did it. We, we killed him. And it might have looked bleak for a while, and obviously all the disciples thought it was pretty bleak. Where's Jesus? What's going to happen to us now? But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. God had the last word. And God, again, wants you and I to understand, if we believe in the big God that Revelation talks about, we must understand that though it looks like evil has its way for a while and is, is winning for a while, and even things in our life, it may look bleak for a while, God has the last word always. Always. And that's true here. Notice what happened. Their corpses, verse 8, will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. The reason it's called symbolically that is because Jerusalem at this point in history is no better than the cities of Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was also crucified. That's one of the clues that we know it's actually Jerusalem that's being talked about here. For three and a half days, those from every people, tribe, nation, and language will look at their corpses. How gross is that? because they will not permit them to be placed in a tomb. And those who live on the earth, notice, will rejoice over them and celebrate even sending gifts to each other. It's like a tribulation Christmas party. We're going to send gifts to each other and rejoice because these two prophets of God are dead. Can I tell you, that also illustrates for us the hatred. The hatred that unbelieving world and the demonic world have against not only Jesus and His Word, but against His people. And that's why God is saying, you got to be strong in me. Because even before the tribulation happens, the world is not going to be friendly towards Christians and towards the message of Jesus Christ. It's going to be hard to stand up for Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. And we better learn to have a spiritual backbone and spiritual strength in our lives or else we will be like that turtle that just sort of hides in its shell and hides its light. And Jesus said, don't hide your light. Don't put your light under a bushel that people can't see. Hold your light out there so that people can see the light of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed that you're a Christian. Don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you will not confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father in heaven. The church needs to stop being intimidated and fearful. And we need to rise up and be who God calls us to be. That's when we know our view of God is growing and getting bigger. Then here's another fascinating thing we learn from the book of Revelation. If you go over to chapter 12, I already in the first 
six verses gave you the characters there, so I'm not going to go back over that. But notice in chapter 12, verse 7, there's a war that breaks out in heaven. Can you imagine what that's like? And it's a war between Satan and the demonic world and the angelic world that did not fall when Lucifer fell. Now again, I don't know about you, but I would like to see what does that look like? Because it, obviously it's a spiritual war in a sense. And some even Christians are like, why, why is Satan even in heaven? Well, let's remember something. When you come up with an interpretation of the Bible, talking about understanding the Bible, and coming to a right interpretation, one thing you have to do is compare Scripture with Scripture. You can't base an interpretation of something off of just one context. You've got to take the entire context of all that the Bible teaches about something. So even back in the Old Testament, what do we know from the book of Job, chapter 1? We know that the Bible teaches us that God still has conversations and interactions with Satan. Because Satan came to God and started talking to God about Job. In fact, God's the one that said, hey, Satan... You consider my servant Job, he's a pretty special guy, stand-up guy. And of course, Satan challenged that. Satan said, well, the only reason he's your servant and does the things that he does is because you put a hedge about him and you won't allow anything to happen to him. Let me at him, and he'll curse you and die. So we know that the Bible teaches that God still has interaction with Satan. You see, I know it's hard for us to understand, and we totally can't understand everything. But, again, even in their fallen state, as wicked as they are, Lucifer and all of those demonic beings were still creations of God. And just like all human beings that God ever created, they will live forever. They will just live apart from God forever, in eternity, in the lake of fire. But something else we need to consider. Again, going back to the big God and our view of God being as big as it should be, here's something you and I have to understand that sometimes we have a hard time wrapping our minds around and that we need to always consider is that the devil is still God's devil. Meaning that why does God allow the devil and the demonic world the latitude that he does? Because they will serve his purposes ultimately. They will serve his purposes. See, God's still in control. Just like with the story of Job. Satan could not touch Job unless he got God's permission. It all had to be part of God's purpose and plan for Job. You see. Because God will never choose to allow something into our life that ultimately is not for our good and for our spiritual benefit. And we see that with Job. Now again, why we have to have strong faith is because, let's like Job, sometimes God will allow suffering or a season of tribulation or trial to come into our life. And what's one of the first things we could say in a weakened state? God, why me? Have I done something wrong? Did I offend you in some way? Are you mad at me? No. It's part of the purpose of God. And we've got to let God work out His purposes. Like Paul said in Romans 8.28, God can work all things together for good to those that love God, but we've got to let God have time to work it out. And just because we're going through something now doesn't mean that's how it's going to ultimately end. So often, we just want to take a snapshot of something and then define it and say, well, that's the way it is. And we've got to 
look big picture because we serve a big God. A big God. So yes, God still allows the approach of fallen angels into His presence. But the Bible says that war broke out in heaven, verse 7, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. The dragon, Satan, was not strong enough to prevail, so there was no longer any place left in heaven for him and his angels. So finally, the huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan. So again, if you just keep reading, you get the, interp- you, you get the meaning. So often people are like, well, there's too many symbols in the Bible. Who's the dragon? Just keep reading. You'll find out. The Bible tells you who the dragon is. It's the devil. It's Satan. Who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels along with him. And notice again, what happens after that? Worship of God. A loud voice in heaven says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of his Christ have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them day and night, before our God has been thrown down. But notice, they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, you heavens rejoice and all who reside in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you and he's filled with terrible anger because he knows that he only has a little time. Now that's a key. See, even at that point in the tribulation, the devil knows it's not long before God's going to send me to the lake of fire. And even to the bottomless pit during the millennial kingdom, I don't have a lot of time left. So he really concentrates and sort of, as we would say, all hell breaks loose. Can I tell you, back it up just a little bit more. Satan and his demons are very smart, obviously. They also know that we're getting very close to the return of Christ, to the rapture. And so they know that the time to even persecute the church and hurt God's people and diminish the witness of the church, they've only got a short time left. And I believe that's why we have entered into a season, even as the church, where there is an all-out onslaught by the demonic world against God's people like never before. And why the church needs to be as strong as ever. Because we are living in a day and age where I believe the demonic world knows that their time is short and they're not holding anything back. And if they're not holding anything back, how much more does that behoove us as believers in Jesus Christ to make sure that we are living devoted, committed lives and like never before to put Jesus Christ first in our life, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all those other things will be added unto us. So this war takes place. But did you notice something else about the war? Did you notice God himself didn't even have to get involved? Because it wouldn't have been much of a war anyway. Because again, as much as we put Lucifer and the demonic beings on a pedestal, which we shouldn't, that they're just part of God's creation. There's a total separation between all that God created and the Creator. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are on a whole different plane than anything that they created. Anything that they created, including Lucifer, can't hold a candle to God at all. So you notice here that God didn't even have to get involved in the war. Michael, the archangel, as the Bible talks about him, and his angels, angels like Gabriel and others, 
They defeated Satan and his angels without God even getting involved. And let's not forget something. These angels, like Michael and Gabriel and others that are identified in the Bible, does not the Bible teach us that these are ministering spirits, the book of Hebrews, sent forth to minister to us who are heirs of salvation? Do you not realize that God not only watches over you as one of His children, but that He has myriads upon myriads, legions upon legions of angels that He can send around us and to our lives every day to minister to us? In fact, Jesus even said, Could I not call legions of angels to come and rescue me from this fate? Absolutely. We've got to remember that story from 2 Kings. I love it. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I shared it just a couple Wednesday nights ago at Bible study where Elisha is surrounded with his servant Gehazi by the Sumerian army. And the servant comes in and says, Elisha, we're cooked. Why? Why are we cooked? Because the whole Sumerian army is surrounding us. And Elisha says, oh God, open the eyes of my servant so that he can see. And the Bible says that God answered his prayer and all of a sudden Gehazi looked up And he saw this angelic army surrounding the army of of Samaria. And then Elisha said, God's got a bigger army than any human army you'd ever run into. Again, big God with great resources. Do not be afraid. Well, let's move on. We've got to get moving here. I want to go to chapter 15. Again, I want to show you worship. Look at verse 3. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and astounding are your deeds, Lord God the All-Powerful. Just and true are your ways, King over the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You see the worship of God continually throughout the book of Revelation. And one day, folks, you and I will be there. Let's get to chapter 16. I want to show you this. In chapter 16, the culmination is the very last event of the tribulation. It's what is called the Battle of Armageddon. And the only reference to the word Armageddon that's found in the Bible is actually found in chapter 16 of Revelation, verse 16. Now the spirits, and isn't that interesting? I believe that there's going to be demonic spirits, again, leading and influencing the kings of the earth and the nations and the political people of the earth to come and gather their armies together at a place that is called Armageddon or Harmageddon in the Hebrew language. Now again, so many people get caught up with the whole concept of Armageddon and where it's going to take place. We don't know exactly where this place is. We believe, based upon the, the, the word here, that it's probably a place that edges up to the city of Megiddo, the ancient city of Megiddo, which was surrounded by mountains. And then there was this huge valley called the Valley of Megiddo, or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that sort of was there in, embedded around the mountain. And the reason why we believe that that's the place where this battle is going to take place is because that has been the site of major battles throughout world history. 
as some generals have even said, and these are people that aren't even Christians and don't believe the Bible, several generals down through history have said, if you wanted a world war and you wanted to pick out a geographical spot on the map in the world where to have a war where armies would gather together, this would be the place. The Valley of Megiddo there in Palestine. So we believe that that's where. But here's the thing about the Battle of Armageddon. It really isn't a battle. If you read further on, you understand that all these armies of the, of the world come together and they're going to come against the people of God gathered there and all of a sudden the second coming of Jesus comes and there is no battle. There's no war. The Bible says Jesus speaks a word and it's done. It's over with just the power of his word. So really, it's a misnomer to say the battle of Armageddon because that sort of conjures up that there's actually going to be fighting and stuff involved. There really isn't. Jesus Christ is going to finally squelch all world rebellion against his kingship once and for all. Let's talk for a few moments about chapter 17 and 18. I'm not going to talk too much about that, but I want to say this. Chapter 17 of Revelation is all about God's judgment on false religion. It's described here as the great prostitute, which isn't that interesting because I think a lot of false religion is all about money and making money the God rather than the worship of God. And we even see that today where even in church, money can become the driving force of everything rather than focusing on the worship of God. Also, something to remember is the great prostitute stands in contrast to the bride of Christ, you see. Because what is Satan always about? Satan is always about counterfeits. So, for instance, then in chapter 18, we have the description of God's judgment on evil commercialism. And it's described by a city called Babylon. Well, Babylon is standing in contrast to the new Jerusalem that God's going to bring down as sort of the capital city of his kingdom. See, everything that God chooses to do and does, Satan has a counterfeit that's not near as good, you see. I mean, even think about the unholy trinity that we find in the book of Revelation. So the holy trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So what's Satan do? Well, you've got Satan who counteracts God the Father. Then you've got the Antichrist counteracting Jesus Christ. And you've got the false prophet who counteracts the Holy Spirit. Satan is always about counterfeiting. And the sad thing is to say, again, as human beings, many times we accept the counterfeits of Satan that aren't near as good as the reality that God offers. But that's the way Satan works. If God's offering something, Satan will offer something else. And Satan, will, just like he did with Jesus when he tempted him. Remember, he took Jesus up to that place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. If you just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus like, I don't want the kingdoms of the world. They're not going to last. I'm going to destroy them someday. I'm not going to bow down to you. You have nothing to offer me. That's when you and I, again, know that we are in a place where nothing can pull us, when we get to a place where anything that the world offers us, anything Satan offer, offers us, has no attraction at all. Only what God offers us truly then pulls us and draws us as a desire of our heart. 
So that's what chapter 17 and 18 is all about. False religion will finally come to an end. Evil commercialism will come to an end. I mean, if you read chapter 18, again, it's all about materialism and all about the accumulation of stuff and all this stuff that people have and, and everything like that. And it's not going to mean anything one day. As Paul said, naked we came into this world and naked we're going to go out. We can't carry anything with us. That's why Jesus tells his followers, why don't you invest in eternal things? Why don't you lay up treasure in heaven rather than on the earth? Because if your treasure is on the earth, if it's about building your kingdom rather than living for my future kingdom, then what are you going to have? Because one day you're going to be separated from that either at the rapture or in death. You're going to leave all that stuff behind to somebody else who didn't work for it, according to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. And you can't take all that stuff with you. You can't enjoy it. So why are you living for that? Why not invest in eternal things? And so God's going to show sort of the futility, if you will, and the vanity of living for material possessions and material things. And while one day it's going to all come crashing down to an end. And then we come to chapter 19. Chapter 19 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible because it depicts for us the second coming of Christ. Now, just for a moment, I want you to turn to your notes. At the top, it says the return of the king, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. I just want to point out something very quickly. On these set of notes, this is something, again, you can study for yourself someday. I believe that we can sort of summarize. And again, even the Bible says there could not be enough books to contain all that Jesus is and does. So we get that. I'm not in any way, again, trying to diminish the greatness of Jesus Christ here. I'm trying to do the opposite. But what I do want to say is this. We can sort of summarize his life, if you will, around seven events. Notice, number one, his incarnation, Bethlehem. Two, his baptism. Three, his temptation in the wilderness. Four, his crucifixion. Five, his bodily resurrection. Six, his ascension. And seven, his second coming. You'll notice the nature of His coming is detailed in the Bible. It'll be personal, historical, visible, physical, victorious, and cosmic in its benefits. The purpose of His coming is detailed. It will be to judge Satan, sin, and the system of the world. It will be to establish the universal, visible manifestation of His kingdom. And finally, it is to provide motivation for you and I to serve the Christian community in each and every generation. Because one day... If we believe we're going to rule and reign with Christ and be part of that kingdom, then guess what? Our role and responsibility in Christ's kingdom is going to be based on our faithfulness to His kingdom now. That's what the Bible teaches. That's why I tell people, when, people, when Christians say, well, you know what? I don't care about serving the Lord or being part of a local church and all that because I know I'm saved and I'm going to heaven when I die. That's all that matters to me is I just make it. I'm like, then you, you really don't have a very high view of God. You don't have a very high view of yourself. Because do you realize that God has told you in His Word, if you're listening, that your role and responsibility throughout eternity is going to be based on your Christian life here? If you were faithful, Jesus says, over a few things, I will make you faithful over many things. Read all those parables in the Gospels. 
Over and over again, Jesus tried to exhort his followers. My life now counts for eternity. Not just where I'm going to spend eternity, but what I'm going to be doing in eternity. It's important. Then you'll notice the chart, little colored chart. Clearly contrasting Jesus' first and second comings. First coming, rode on a donkey. Second, white horse. Second, he came on as a suffering servant. Second coming, king and lord. First coming, humility and meekness, majesty and power. First coming, suffer the wrath of God for sinners, come to establish the kingdom of God for saints. First coming, rejected by many as the Messiah. Second coming, will be recognized by all as Lord. Remember what Paul said into Philippians? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because God has given him a name above every name. First coming, he came to seek and save the lost. Second coming, he will come to judge and rule as king. You see, a kingdom, the kingdom of God has been predicted and prophesied throughout Scripture. Well, you can't have a kingdom without a king. Guess who's the king? Jesus. And guess now, the kingdom of God exists today in a now, not yet way. Because Jesus' kingdom exists now in the hearts of those of us who believe in it. That's why Jesus said, the kingdom of God stands in front of you now. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, he is exerting his rule and reign, if you will, through us. But one day, he's literally, visibly, physically going to rule the earth for 1,000 years, and he's going to use us to help him. Something to look forward to. First coming, he came as God incognito, except for that one time on the Mount of Transfiguration where he sort of flashed his glory. But in the second coming, he will come as God in all his splendor. All right. So back to Revelation chapter 19. We see the triumph of Christ, the warrior king. Notice, the king of kings is coming again. Then I saw heaven open, John said. Chapter 19, verse 11. And here came a white horse. The one riding it was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and goes to war. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and there are many diadem crowns on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is dressed in clothing dipped in blood, and he is called the Word of God. And the armies that are in heaven, dressed in white, clean, fine linen, were following him on white horses. From his mouth extends a sharp sword, so that with it he can strike the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. And he stumps the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. He has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. All my friends, I hope you believe in that Jesus today. Remember what Revelation 11 says. One day the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. I love Handel's Messiah. I can't go a Christmas without listening to Handel's Messiah. I love those songs because it reminds us that even as He came in humility at His birth in Bethlehem to be our sin-bearer and to ultimately die on the cross, he also came to reclaim a kingdom for us and to be king over this earth. And one day he will be recognized as king by every person and every 
nation on the earth. King of kings and Lord of lords. I hope that that's your view of who Jesus is today. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Now let me ask you, or share something with you that I hope will be encouraging to you. Do you know that if you're here today and you're a Christian, do you know that you are in the book of Revelation? Do you know that? Let me show you. In chapter 19, look at verse 14. Do you know you're part of that army that comes back with him? That's you. You are part of the army in heaven dressed in white, clean, and fine linen. How do we know that that's talking about Christians? Well, if you look at 19 verse 8, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is an invitation to those who by the blood of the Lamb made themselves ready as the bride of Christ, notice how it says they are dressed. She, as the bride of Christ, was permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, and fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Folks, this isn't talking about angels here. The armies in heaven aren't the angels at this point. The armies in heaven are all of us as believers of all the ages who will come back with Jesus. That's you. You're in the book of Revelation. Not only in chapter 19, verse 14, you're also there in chapter chapter 19, verse 19. Notice the very last few words. With His army. That's you. That's me. If you know the Lord, you will be part of that army. Now again, it's not like we're really going to fight because there is no fight. The sword of the mouth of Jesus, His powerful Word, goes forth and literally strikes all the armies of the nations down. In one fell swoop, rebellion is put down by the Word of God. We're just along to enjoy, if you will, the victory that we see Christ gain. Let's talk for a moment about the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ in chapter 20. We're almost there, folks. We're almost there. Hang in there with me for just a few more minutes. Notice something very interesting. Before the thousand-year little... And, and I'll just say it. Do I believe in a literal, physical reign of Jesus on earth with us? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. Again, as I said on Sunday... There were 190 prophecies or signs concerning the first coming of Jesus, and every last one of them was literally fulfilled. I hear people say, oh, you know, the book of Revelation, you just can't really take it literal. It's sort of allegorical and symbols and all that kind of stuff. Listen, all the prophecies and signs concerning Jesus' first coming, I'm just going to mention a few like I did on Sunday, from the fact that he would be born of a virgin and born in Bethlehem, and uh, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and he would ride into Jerusalem the last week of his life on a coat, and uh, he would be uh, crucified, and his tomb would be with, uh, he would be buried with the rich. Every last one of those 190 prophecies or signs was literally fulfilled. So I expect that all 300 prophecies concerning His second coming will be literally fulfilled. And I believe that Jesus Christ will come back as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And with us, His people, we will rule and reign on planet Earth. But notice before that thousand years begin, what happens? 
an angel descending from heaven, chapter 20, verse 1, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he locks him up basically for a thousand years. During that time, Satan and all the demons will be locked up and put away. My goodness! No more satanic oppression and influence and everything for a thousand years. No wonder it's good on earth, right? But let's not forget something. And here's where it can get a little mind-bending. Not everybody who goes into the tribulation period is in their glorified body. Remember, you and I have been in heaven. Follow me here. We come back in our glorified body to be with Jesus, to enter into the millennial kingdom in our glorified body. But there will be those who come out of the tribulation still alive in their non-glorified body. Who obviously during that thousand year period will have children, will get married, will populate the earth once again because there's much of the earth has been unpopulated through the tribulation period. Many people have died. And so there's going to be this weird sort of mashup, if you will, during the tribulation period between those of us in our glorified bodies who are ruling and reigning with Christ alongside of people who are not in their glorified body, who are living sort of like we are, but yet under the rule of Jesus Christ without satanic influence. I know, it's sort of like, wow, that, that's going to be strange. You're right. But then notice, it says in verse 7 of chapter 20, after this thousand years is over, and by the way, let me look at verse 6 real quick. Notice it says, they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's us too. We're in book of Revelation. You and I are promised to rule and reign with Jesus on the earth. That's you. Write your name there. That's me. But when the thousand years are finished, notice what God does. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to bring them together for a battle. That's why it's technically not correct to say that the battle of Armageddon is the last battle, because it's really not. The battle of what we call Gog and Magog here at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ is actually the very last battle that will ever be fought on earth. To bring them together for the battle. They are as numerous, notice, as the grains of sand in the sea. In other words, there's a huge amount of people now on the earth who are now in rebellion against God. You see, during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, the reason why the Bible says He will rule them with the rod of iron is people born during the millennial reign of Christ in natural bodies and people who enter the tribula or millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies they will have to outwardly conform to his rule. In other words, they will have to do what Jesus said. But that doesn't mean in their hearts they want to. That doesn't mean in their heart they want to. That doesn't mean their heart's right with God just because outwardly they're doing what God says we should do. Now that's an important thing for us to remember. See, sometimes, even today, you and I even, or others, can somehow outwardly conform to the things of God. The things we think others want to see in us. And, and, you know, we can fool people. We can look really spiritual to other people at times. But God knows our heart. And God doesn't care about the externals. 
God cares about the internals because if my heart's right, then everything will flow out of that. But if my heart's not right with God, I can put up a show and put on all these externals, but at the end of the day, that's not going to cut it for long because I can't sustain something that's not heart-driven. I can't. It's not real. And it won't last. So what this shows, first of all, is again, the wickedness of the human heart apart from satanic influence. See, human beings can't say, the devil made me do it. They can't say that anymore. Because for that whole thousand years, part of the reason why God, people ask me, why does God remove Satan for a thousand years during the millennium? So that human beings can't have the excuse, well, the, the reason I never got on board with God and my heart wasn't right with God was because Satan influenced me. I had demonic influence in my life. God's going to remove all that. And then when God allows Satan and the demonic world back into the world to sort of you know, at least gather, sort of lead all those who want to be in rebellion against God for one final rebellion. What's that show us and why does God do that? Because God wants to show us that even though he and the demonic world was confined for 1,000 years, literal years, their heart and desires did not change towards God. See, one of the other questions I've gotten over the years is, Jeff, it's just really hard for, you know, I love the fact that heaven's going to be for eternity, but I just have a hard time understanding how could a God allow hell for all of eternity? How, how could there be a Christless eternity? Why, why does it have to be forever? God's showing us why. Eternal sinfulness demands eternal separation from God and judgment. You see, what God is showing is no matter how long Satan exists, Satan's heart will never change towards God. So that's why God says for all of eternity, Satan, you and your demonic force will be over there. And that's the way it is with some human hearts. And that's why hell will be for all of eternity. Because eternal sinfulness requires eternal separation from God. God is a holy God. God cannot abide sin. And God one day is going to say, okay, that's where your heart's at? And here's the thing. If God went back to them 10 million years from now and said, want to change? I know it's hard for us to understand, but they would go, no, I'm good. Because I don't want any parts of you. I still want to do things my way. I want to be in control. I want to be the leader of my life. And let's remember something very sobering. What this also reminds us of is this. And this should be something that really sort of makes every day, in fact, every hour and minute that you and I live as human beings on this earth, it should raise the value of our lives and what we do and who we interact with every day. Because as you even look around at this room, almost 200 people here, do you realize every person that your eyes sees, that they are immortal? That you and everyone around you will exist somewhere forever? Because that's the way God made it. That's why even Lucifer and the fallen angels, the demons, 
They exist forever. Nothing God ever created, He will annihilate. There is no such thing in the Bible as annihilationism, even though that's a popular false teaching today. That is not biblical. The Bible clearly teaches that part of the the value and why we don't see people even putting value on human life anymore and why they take human life so casually today is because we have forsaken God and we have forgot the value that God places on life. And the fact that we're just not existing for a few years, you and I as human souls that God breathed into, we will exist forever. And that every human being that you and I come in contact with every day is an immortal At one point in history, they're either going to exist forever in heaven with God or they're going to exist forever in the lake of fire without God. But they will exist forever. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that that puts a little pop in my step every day because that means that if in some way, I could just in a small way influence one human being towards God... That means I've changed eternity because I've interacted with an immortal human being. Someone who will always be. This is what Revelation teaches us as well. God is so big. Well, let's come to this. One day, chapter 20, verse 11 We come to the great white throne judgment. This is not a judgment for those of us who again have Jesus as our personal Savior. This is a judgment of those who reject Jesus as their Savior. And they will stand before God and they will be judged by their deeds. And the reason they will be judged by their deeds is because that's all they can offer. They do not stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ like believers do. All they can offer God is their self-righteousness, which the Bible says is like filthy rags. For the Bible teaches us that He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And the only way Jeff Royce can stand before God one day is not based on my own righteousness. It is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I hope you know that. These people, they have nothing but their own deeds and righteousness to stand before. And they will be given up to the second death, the Bible says. And notice it says in verse 15, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. There is one book that you better make sure your name is written in. If you're an immortal human being, and that is the book of life. How do I get there? Your name gets there when you personally place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Peter said, there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. No other name. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. Maybe the most important answer you can ask yourself today or give is, do I know for sure my name is written in the book of life?
Because if not, one day, you will be standing at the great white throne judgment. And if your name is not written there, you will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And I don't know about you, but that makes my head hurt when I begin to think about forever. You know, we, we put so much emphasis on the 70, 80, 90 puny years that we might live on earth. And God made us for eternity. And yet so few Christians even live their lives in light of eternity every day. I think the book of Revelation is telling us we better start living in light of what we know is sure to come. Because all the way back even in the book of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, listen to this. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show His servants which must happen very soon. See, from God's perspective, it's certain this is going to happen. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. I hope we all realize that. Well, how about this? Let's end on a happier note, shall we? Let's go into chapter 21. The new heaven and the new earth. What will eternity be like for those of us that know the Lord? I'm going to give you five things. First of all, we will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth, God is going to destroy. So let me just say this real quick. I'm not going to try to get political, so don't get all, you know. But this whole thing, this whole obsession today about the earth and we're not going to make it and the earth is going to be destroyed. Again, who's in control of the earth? God is. God has a plan that even if Jesus were to come today, then you have the seven-year tribulation. Then after that, you have a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. So God has a plan for this earth for at least a thousand and seven more years. And that's if Jesus Christ came today. So don't get caught up, Christian, in this whole thing about, you know, the earth's going to explode and, and the earth isn't going to last more than a few more years. God's got a plan for this universe and this earth for another thousand and seven years. He's going to make sure it stays here. Okay? All right. Sorry, just had to get that off my chest. You can tell I get it just a little like, you know. New heaven and a new earth. Also, we will live in intimate personal communion with our God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the first heaven and first earth, first earth had ceased to exist and the sea existed no more. By the way, that's sort of crazy, isn't it? For those of you that like the sea and the ocean, no more sea and oceans in the new heaven. Then I saw... Holy city, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the residence of God is now among human beings. He will live among them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. To me, the greatest thing about heaven and eternity is we get to be with God. In fact, if you go over to chapter 22, verse 4, these may be the most precious words in the whole book of Revelation. One day the Bible says that we will see His face. Wow. You ever thought about the fact that one day you and I are going to get to look into the face of Jesus in all His glory? And the reason we're going to be able to do that is because we're going to be in a glorified state. We couldn't do it now. We'd die. But we're going to get to see Jesus in all of His glory and we're going to be able to look into His face. 
which by the way, I shared a couple weeks ago too in another message that what's so cool about that is now God demands and requires that his followers live by faith, not by sight. But one day when we get to glory, we won't have to live by faith anymore. We will have sight. We'll be ready. We'll see Jesus. We're going to see heaven. We're going to see it all. We'll not be required to ever live by faith again because it will all be right there for us. Third, we will no longer experience the horrible effects of sin. Notice verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. No more heart disease, no more cancer, no more diabetes. Could I go on and on and on? No more sickness, no more separation, no more death, no more goodbyes. No more curse. And I don't know about you, but though I feel good for my age right now, I can't wait to get in that glorified body. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on corruption. What's that going to be like? Flying all over the universe. It's going to be great. Four, we will rest in the sure promises of God. We will rest in the sure promises of God. Verse 5, and the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. By the way, that word new speaks about new in quality. It's not just going to be new as far as, oh, I've never seen that before. It's going to be the highest quality you could ever imagine. And by the way, I think I shared this, and it was so encouraging to some of our people here at the Oasis. I want to share it here today. That when Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, do you realize that Jesus is saying, I love you so much. And because I created you, I know you better than you even know yourself. I, I know every detail about you. The, the place I'm creating for you is a personal space that I'm decorating and making just for you. That when you get there, you're going to have your own personal space in this new Jerusalem, which is sort of the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. And I'm going to make a space just for you. And I just have to believe that even though I think I know some of the things that are going to be there in my personal space, you know, things like pan of brownies, you know, things like that that I'm going to be blown away when I get there and go, wow, Jesus, that's even better than I could ever imagine because that's the kind of God, again, that we serve. It is a God that Paul said can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. We will rest in the sure promise of God. Notice what he says. Write it down because these words are what? Reliable and true. Dependable. Trustworthy. Use whatever synonym you want to use there. God is saying, rest in my promises. Really, throughout all of eternity. And then finally, we will live as God's adopted children with no fear of the second death. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the one who is thirsty, I will give water free of charge from the spring of the water of life. One of the favorite descriptions of eternity is this water. Excuse the, but the an oasis. Fountains. It is big in the new Jerusalem. God's going to have places of water. Even though there's no more sea and no more ocean, God's going to have places. And it just reminds me of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. I have this water of life that if you would just partake of it, you'd never be thirsty again. There's going to be this nourishing and healing and refreshing water in eternity. 
And then it goes on to say, the one who conquers, there it is again, will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. But to the cowards, unbelieving, detestable persons, murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic spells, idol worshipers, all who lie, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That is the second death. What a contrast between the destinies of believers and unbelievers from the book of Revelation. Look again, and then... Let me go back to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9. This whole new Jerusalem. I wanted to point this out because i got a few minutes. Isn't it interesting? It was to me. It's interesting that history, going back to Genesis, starts in a garden, but it ends in a city. And I know a lot of times you and I, especially nowadays, when we look, think about cities, cities conjure up congested and dirty and traffic and crime and, you know, a lot of negative thoughts. But here's what we got to understand. Obviously, all that's going to be gone. The reason why God wants us to live in a city and together in community is because that's the way God always designed it. God wants us to be with Him and He wants us to be with others. He doesn't want us to be scattered and isolated from each other. He wants us to be together with each other. The only reason that he did the Tower of Babel thing and scattered people was why? Because Genesis says when they came together because their hearts were so evil, all they thought about doing was cooking up evil things. And God said, I've I've got to scatter you. But God actually wants to bring people together. He always intended for us to live in community with him and with one another, which is why it started in a garden, but it ends in a city. Finally, Revelation chapter 22. Three invitations. In chapter 22, verse 6 through 9, he invites the church. In chapter 22, verses 10 through 19, you'll see there in the notes, he invites the world. And finally, in chapter 22, verses 20 to 21, he invites the individual believer. Come. Come, he says. Always his invitation. Just like in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for you will find rest for your souls. Jesus has always extended his invitation. And here's what he says. I want you to note these as we close today. Three times in the last chapter, okay, The last thing God wants to leave in our minds, the the lasting thing, what is it? Three times in this last chapter of the Bible, notice what Jesus says. First of all, in verse 7, then in verse 12, and then in verse 20. Look, I am coming soon. Look at verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. Look at verse 20. Yes, I am coming soon. Are we ready? Are we looking with anticipation and expectation and excitement towards the return of Jesus Christ? I love the response of John here in verse 20. Amen! Come, Lord Jesus! Let me ask you. Can you say that today?
Is, would that be your response? If you heard Jesus say, I'm coming soon, is your response like John, Amen, Jesus, you come? Or is it, Jesus, could you wait a little bit longer? Because I, I still got stuff to do here. I, I still want to build my kingdom here. I, you know, what, what's out there and what you're offering me, I, I'm still not convinced that that's the best is yet to come. I, I, think, I think my earthly life is, oh, how sad. See, the book of Revelation is a reminder to all of us of something that we should remind ourselves of every day. And that is because we are in Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. What is the book of Revelation about? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book, more than anything else, wants to give us and leave us with a high opinion, estimation, and view of who Jesus is. And my one goal, honestly, before God, my one goal, more than anything else in doing this seminar, was this. I wanted everyone who was here today, if nothing else, if you didn't get anything else out of this today, my one goal was for everyone to leave here with a higher view of Jesus Christ than when you walked in. To leave here all, all and inspired by Jesus. Who He is and what He has done for us and what He is going to do for us one day. That is my desire. Hey, before we leave, just a couple of things. One, I just want to, again, thank you for putting up with four out, well, three and three hours and 15 minutes of teaching the Bible. That's, that's a long time to sit. And again, this day would not be possible without so many people pitching in. And I think I've recognized most of them, but I just want to say this was really a church project. It really was from all the extra people who were here early to help my wife, you know, set the tables up and put the the tablecloths on and put the folders out and all of that to all the people who we called upon to bring waters and coolers and all of that. I mean, you guys, you just knocked it out of the park and you made this all possible. And I just, as the pastor, just want to personally thank you for, for you making this possible. Because this wasn't just me. This was a church project of making this possible. So two things I'd like to leave with you today. One, take that postcard of our next seminar with you today. We will be making those available in a couple weeks here at the Oasis. But I would very much like you to consider coming to that on Saturday, November the 4th. As I said, I believe if you carve out that time, you will find that when you leave, that it will be spiritually beneficial to you. You will be able to get more out of your time in God's Word after that than you did before. Something else that I, I wanted to do is because so many are here today and you are not part of the Oasis, so you may not obviously even know about this, I thought some of you may be interested in these. Uh, these are not books on prophecy, but two books that I have written, and some of you may be interested in purchasing these. If you are, they will be available at the back table. 
I did a study on Psalms and Proverbs, all 150 Psalms and all 31 chapters of Proverbs are in this book. You could sort of use this as a daily devotion. And uh, with, you know, Christmas only less than 100 days away, things like this can even be a great gift for somebody if you want to give them the Word of God, because that's exactly what this is, the Word of God. I also wrote a daily devotion called Digging into Discipleship. It literally goes from January 1st of every year, even includes a leap year day in there, all the way through December uh, 30th of every year. Uh, and, it, and many people say that they really uh, enjoy going through uh, a daily devotion every day. I know there's many better ones out there. Um, you know, my utmost for his highest and all those wonderful classics. But if you're looking for something new, uh, we would certainly encourage you, if you want, Again, both of these are available back there, and my wife, uh, and it looks like Marsha is going to help her out, will we'll take care of you. Let's pray. God, thank you so very much for getting us through these four hours together. God, it has only been by your Spirit. These four hours are certainly a reminder of Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And God, we thank You that Your Spirit empowers us and energizes us and even keeps us awake and alert that long so that, Lord, we can begin to absorb just a little bit more of who You are in Your greatness, in Your majesty, in Your awesomeness. You are an incomparable God. There is no God like You. There is no one we could ever compare to You. And yet, God, You love us so much that You want to have an eternal relationship with us. You want to be near to us. You want to be close to us. God, that's more than we could ever fa even fathom. But God, we accept it by faith. And we trust in Your Word. And God, I pray today that our time in Your Word, in this great book, Revelation has been profitable and beneficial for every person who's attended. They've taken quite a chunk out of their Saturday to be here today. And God, I pray that You would bless them, that You would show Your favor to them, and that God, in some small way, this time together would be a time that would inspire and motivate them to live for Jesus like never before in the days in which we live. God, help us to be that light, both individually and as churches, that You've called us to be. Help us not to hide our light like so many do, but help us to shine our light that others may see our good and glorify our Father in heaven. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you.